Today we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 23, the last part of the book. For centuries, you need to understand that the Jews had been waiting a very long time for the Messiah. The Old Testament had promised their Messiah. The, the special anointed one was going to come. There's many passages in the Old Testament that promise that. The hope of the Jew was that the Messiah would arrive and he would usher in this age of blessing. And the blessing was for God's people. Many Jewish women longed to be the mother of the Messiah. Many Jewish men thought of rising to, to this special place of honor. Yet when the Messiah did come and He finally did offer His kingdom to His people and, and, and promised to bless them, instead of receiving their Messiah, Israel's leaders rejected their Messiah. They so despised them, as we've talked about in the end of the book of Matthew, what did they do to Him? They actually not only rejected Him, they murdered Him, they crucified Him, and they murdered many of His followers as well. In that time of Israel's history, God's people confirmed that they preferred falsehood above the truth. They preferred damnation above salvation. They preferred Satan's way above God's way. Israel was given God's covenants in the Old Testament. They were given God's promises. And yet when those blessings were actually fulfilled in their Messiah, they rebelled against Him and put Him to death. Leading that rejection were the scribes and the Pharisees, which Jesus has been talking about here in Matthew chapter 23, and He's, he's been talking about it previously as well. These scribes and Pharisees were false spiritual leaders. These hypocritical haters of God hungered and thirst for blood, not righteousness. They were not hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness. They wanted Jesus' blood. And at the very moment that Jesus is addressing these religious leaders in the, at the Temple Mount, at the same time they're plotting Jesus' arrest and His murder. So in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus pronounces seven curses, which your, your Bible might call them woes. Seven curses or seven woes upon these wicked leaders of Israel. By the way, let me give you a heads up before we read. In verse 14, which is not included in the ESV Bible, it's not included in the NIV, and in the New American Standard Bible, it is put in brackets because the best early manuscripts of Matthew do not have verse 14 in that Bible. And so you'll, you'll see it excluded in the English Standard Version, and New, New American Standard puts it in brackets, showing it's not in the early manuscripts. So I'll just give you a heads up. And you say, well, why is that? Well, it's probably added by a well-meaning copyist later on in history because they actually got it from Mark chapter 12 and Luke chapter 20. So it actually is in your Bible, but it's not in Matthew. So I'm not actually going to read verse 14 because it's not in the text. So the statement is genuine, it just wasn't there originally, okay? So we're going to actually leave verse 14 out. A little heads up there. 
So what is Jesus doing here in Matthew 23? He's, he's pronouncing these curses, these woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees, these false spiritual leaders. And while he's doing this, by the way, extending this beyond them, it, it's really a condemnation upon all false spiritual teachers. And so here's my theme for today, and, and, and my job is to prove to you this theme. Here's the theme. God wants us to beware of hypocrisy because hypocrisy is under God's curse. Hypocrisy is clearly under God's curse. We'll see that in the last, especially in the last several verses of Matthew chapter 23, but over and over and over again, Jesus uses the word hypocrite in describing these scribes and Pharisees. These guys were the religious leaders of Israel. They were to be the teachers of God's law to His people, but they abused their authority. They started off good. They had a good purpose to begin with, but like a lot of things, their power grew and they loved their, their wealth and their positions and so forth and their fame that came with that. And they really lost the plot. Of course, Jesus calls them hypocrites several, several times and and, and and you understand what a hypocrite is, I hope. You'll, you'll see the word hypocrite even in verse 13, our first verse. He, he says, whoa, these curses to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. A hypocrite is just somebody who's pretending to be something they're really not. It, originally, it was used by the Greeks to describe these actors who would put these various masks on. And so an actor could play a, a tragic part or a, a comedy part, depending on which mask they were using. If they wanted to be, if they were acting out a comedy, they'd put on the smiley face. If they were acting out a tragedy, they put on the frown face. And that's originally what a hypocrite was. They were pretending to be something they really weren't. So Jesus is using this word here to describe these religious leaders. They're pretending to be something they're not. Jesus could see their heart. He knew what they really were. Let's read our text together, and we'll see that we need to beware of hypocrisy. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, Jesus says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by Him who sits on it. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. We'll stop there. I hope you can see that Jesus is clearly warning us to beware of hypocrisy. Beware of hypocrisy. And in this particular text, Jesus is pronouncing these woes or these a series of curses. In fact, there's seven of them. Seven curses upon these false spiritual leaders. Now, why would he do that? Well, he's given us seven reasons. Number one, hypocrisy is cursed for making salvation hard for other people. We see that in verse 13. These guys were literally slamming the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces just as they're about to enter into heaven. No way, slam! That's what Jesus said they were doing. The chief evil of every false religion is it shuts people out of God's kingdom. It, it tries to come up with some other way to heaven, which never makes it. So in their hypocrisy, the unbelieving Jews, the, particularly the scribes and Pharisees, pretended to know God, but they didn't. They were religious, but lost. They pretended to be God's spokesmen. We saw that earlier in Matthew 23. They, they claimed the seed of Moses for themselves but they were not God's spokesmen. They pretended to be in His kingdom, but were not. And so in their pride, they even believed they were the doorkeepers of God's kingdom. And they weren't. 
Well, this is certainly true of many spiritual leaders in our day as well. Is it not true of ministers who are preaching, trying to preach the Word, or claim to preach the Word, but never actually explain the gospel, the good news of, of, of salvation through faith in Christ alone? Yes, it is. It's certainly true of seminary professors who undermine belief in the authority of Scripture. They undermine the, the truth that Jesus is God. Or they might say that Jesus never really came in the flesh. They undermine the miracles of Scripture. These professors attack the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And some have even claimed that God is a child abuser. They attack the bodily resurrection of Christ. And they do these sort of things all the while pretending to be serving the church and getting a paycheck from the church. We have many authors today who are doing exactly what the scribes and Pharisees were doing, writing destructive books pretending to explain the Bible. You've got guys like Joel Austin who are trying to tell you, you can have your best life now. Not in the future, you have it now. You've got guys like, oh, what's his name? I just forgot. The guy who wrote uh, Love Wins. No, not Love Wins. Yeah. What's his name? Sorry. Rob Bell. That's it. Sorry, you just skipped my mind. Rob Bell saying, hey, you know, everybody's eventually going to make their way to heaven. If that's true, you don't need to evangelize. You don't need to give money to missions. These heretics write their books. They claim to be Christian, claiming to explain the Bible to people, all the while shutting the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. So the great challenge of the church in our day then is we need to be clear and we need to be bold and articulate of of God's truth. and We need to be clear and, and bold in exposing Satan's lies. Jesus describes him in John. The book of John is a father of lies. And so the great need of the world today is to turn from these falsehoods and then heed God's word and God's truth and then be saved. And so when men's eternal souls are at stake, the church should not be passive. Sadly, it often is. It's passive. It doesn't want to speak up and be bold and articulate. It's, it's often indifference. The church can't hide behind false humility and, well, and say, you know, hey, you know, I just don't, I don't want to be judgmental. The church can't hide behind false love and, and fear offending people. Well, Jesus wasn't afraid of that, was he? <laughs> no way. When it came to falsehood, Jesus was articulate, bold, and clear. Christ was supremely humble, but was never afraid of calling evil, evil. Christ was supremely loving, but he never withheld a warning that might save his hearers from hell. And, by the way, he had nothing but intense anger for these kind of people who would turn people away from God to hell. And so should we, by the way. We should have an intense anger for, for anybody who would shut the door of heaven in people's faces. So hypocrisy is cursed for making salvation hard for other people. Number two, hypocrisy is 
we're to beware of it. It, it. It's something that's cursed for corrupting converts. It corrupts the converts according to verse 15. And by converts, I mean what, what the ESV calls proselytes. And so you need to understand that in New Testament times, there was this great effort that was being made by, well, people like the scribes and Pharisees to make converts. And they would, they would go out and try to get these Gentiles to convert to Judaism. And they worked aggressively. And as Jesus said, they would travel across land and sea to make proselytes or converts. That wasn't necessarily a bad thing. After all, uh, it, had that Jewish effort been made in the right way and for the right reasons, it actually would have been commendable. God had told them to do this sort of thing for His honor and for His glory, but Israel had, had been called to be God's channel to reach the world. They were to be that this great shining lighthouse for God, but they weren't. So because these proselytes were brought into this false religious system, they, uh, as Jesus says, they actually became twice as much a son of hell as the scribes and Pharisees themselves. They sometimes even, as Jesus says here, they even surpassed their mentors in fanatical zeal. And because their zeal was not godly, it was fleshly and sinful, it just simply led them to hell. And so as a, citizen, as a citizen of God's kingdom, every believer ought to be one who, instead of shutting the door of heaven in people's faces, you and I need to be opening the door of the kingdom. All Christians have the keys of the kingdom. The Bible describes that as the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the key. The saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when you are confronted by a representative of a false religion like I was yesterday. I had a Jehovah's Witness come to my door. Tried to offer him my literature. I didn't want to take his Watchtower magazine unless he was willing to take my literature, but he rejected it. And so when you are confronted by a false religion, offer to explain salvation in Christ to that person. By all means, do it. But don't get into a debate on theology and the minor things or the merits of some sacred writing or various interpretations of the Bible. Those things are just going to lead to endless disputes. But you need to firmly condemn the teachings of that group. Their, their theology, don't attack the person, but if they actually believe their theology, you need, they, you need to understand it leads them to hell. So condemn the teachings of those groups just as Jesus did. Number three, we need to beware of hypocrisy because hypocrisy is cursed for trivializing religion. They were trivializing religion as we see in verses 16 through 22. So in that particular indictment, it's interesting, Jesus didn't call his opponents hypocrites. Did you notice that? He calls them blind guides. What Jesus is doing here, he's emphasizing their unawareness that they were actually ignorant of the truth. They're blind, blind guides. And so among their many perversions of truth was the teaching that, hey, you know, whoever swears by the temple, oh, that's nothing. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, then you're obligated. <laughs> really? 
And so if Jesus says, well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Jesus knew their heart. And so the very fact that they had developed this double standard for swearing actually was giving evidence that they're not really concerned about the truth. They're actually trying to evade the truth if it didn't suit their selfish interest. And again, this very thing happens today in various ways. Let me give you some examples of how this might happen today. It happens when teachers make really hair-splitting, delicate decisions about things the Bible teaches. Various teachers might, might argue that, hey, well, this might be a sin over here, but this conduct over here is not a sin. Oh, that sort of thing happens all the time today. It really split hairs a lot of times. Teachers might say, well, Jesus might be saying this, but he might be saying something that's actually quite different than what he actually said there. And they undermine God's authority, which is the Word of God. Teachers might fail to take the Bible's statement at face value and, and fail to teach that truth is always truth. Truth is binding on everyone. A lot of teachers don't say that, though. Preachers are guilty when they shade the truth of the Bible and, and they'll take the Bible doctrine as... Uh, and these these Bible doctrines that, that might be offensive to the powerful and wealthy people that might be listening to them, and so they'll shade it in such a way to not offend the powerful and wealthy. They're doing exactly what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. Number four, you need to beware of hypocrisy because hypocrisy is cursed for neglecting what is actually important. They neglected what is actually important. In verse 23 and 24, that's exactly what they do. And they were magnifying the non-essentials and minimized the essentials. <laughs> Jesus said they, they should have recognized the weightier matters of the law, things like justice and mercy and faithfulness, but instead they're, they're going around picking leaves off their herbs and tithing on that and not doing more important stuff, which was clear in Scripture. The Bible's instructions for tithing food related to marketable farm crops, such as fruit and vegetables. And so what the Pharisees did is they, they, were taking, they, they became very legalistic. And so the legalistic scribes and Pharisees extended the provision to include the smallest potted plants they were actually they would often grow these things in their kitchen windows back then herbs were grown mostly for their leaves and seeds and so the scribes and pharisees would carefully take their herbs such as as it says here verse 23 and they would pick these leaves and seeds off they would count out them and they would they'd give one to god and they would keep nine for themselves they were very detailed on tithing on these little leaves and seeds of the herbs and neglected the essentials. And they gloried in their own self-righteousness, thinking that I'm pleasing God while doing this. And Jesus illustrated the scribes and Pharisees' priorities by saying that they would strain out a little teeny bug, such as a gnat, and they would swallow, proverbially swallow a huge camel. 
Now, why would Jesus pick those two things? Well, the net and the camel represented the smallest and the largest of the ceremonially unclean animals, according to Leviticus chapter 11. And many Pharisees, they would, they would drink with their, their teeth actually clenched together to try to strain out little bugs that might be coming in from their drink. Jesus is saying while they're doing that, they're actually swallowing huge camels. Not literally, of course. And so those Jewish religious leaders were more concerned than about being contaminated by a tiny gnat than by a huge camel. Kind of funny when you think about it. They're careful about ceremonial trivialities. That's what Jesus is saying. They, they would they would really get involved in these ceremonial trivialities, but they're unconcerned about their hypocrisy. They substituted outward acts of religion for essential virtues of the heart. And again, do we do the same today? Well, we, we can do the same today, just like the scribes and Pharisees, if we allow small points of theology or Bible doctrine to crowd out the pursuit of justice for every human being. Did you notice Jesus says He cares about the weightier matters of the law, according to verse 23, things like justice. Do you care about people? One of the problems the Pharisees had is they would, you know, they would, they would set aside one piece of cumin for, for God and they'd keep nine for themselves and then they would refuse to take care of their mother and father. They would abuse their mothers and fathers. We might do the same when we focus on, uh, you know, uh, instead of showing mercy to needy people, we'll zoom on on one minute truth in Scripture. We do the same when we not uh, being faithful to God and serving Him, and then we we want to go and argue with people about various signs of the times. We get very detailed on that sort of stuff. We. We might claim to know the meaning of some obscure sign or a symbol in Scripture and give little attention to the, to the clear moral truths of the Bible. And when we do that, we're doing exactly what Jesus is cursing the scribes and Pharisees for doing. Next we see in verse 25 and 26 there is that hypocrisy is cursed for self-indulgence. And so to illustrate their hypocrisy, Jesus used the figure of cleaning the outside of a cup and plate, but on the inside it was filthy. It was rotten. It was disgusting. So, I mean, what's the point in that? If you had a guest over for dinner, you wouldn't just clean the outside of the plate and leave, and leave rotten, disgusting stuff in the, in the center of the bowl or a plate, would you, and then hand that to your guest? No, of course not. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is illustrating here with their hypocrisy. And so the idea is that a person who's offering a guest a seemingly lovely meal, and it turns out that the food is actually rotten, something that would make them sick. Outwardly, the religious leaders, they gave the, of an, impression, or an impression, I should say, of being pious and devoted to God, Inwardly, they were full of the spiritual filth of greed and self-indulgence. They appeared to be doing the right thing for the right reasons, but Jesus knew their hearts. 
And he says, you're doing it all for the wrong reasons. It's all for yourself, your own self-indulgence. So they were ceremonially immaculate on the outside, but they were spiritually filthy on the inside. And again, there's many modern-day examples we could look at. Many church-going people might have a great concern for keeping up outward appearances, especially in the country I grew up in. I know this is certainly the case. People come come to church on Sundays. They look beautiful on the outside. They've spent a lot of money on their outfits, spent a lot of time on their hairdos and their makeup and their jewelry and all the other stuff. And they'll, they'll say, you know what, it's, it's okay, you know, as, as long as I go to church and I talk nicely and I look good and I give some money to the church and other charitable causes and I do my civic duty during the week and I look after my family, but you know, it doesn't really matter whether I'm actually a dishonest person in my business. It doesn't really matter if I'm a covetous person with all of God's possessions He's given to me. It doesn't matter if I'm cruel to my family. Some people would say, hey, what I do in my private life doesn't matter. Really? What you do in your private life doesn't matter. Is that what Jesus thinks? Jesus clearly says what you do in your private life does matter. In fact, if you don't care about what you do in your private life, Jesus is calling you a hypocrite. You're a fake. You're wearing the mask. Jesus did not think that way. What you do in your private life matters to God. Next, we see where to beware of hypocrisy because hypocrisy is cursed here for internal wickedness. It's cursed for its internal wickedness. In verse 27, Jesus pronounces this woe and this curse to the scribes and Pharisees, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You need to understand something in in Jesus' day, especially in Jerusalem, they would they would uh, the Jews would wait till after the spring rains, and the Jews had this custom of putting a a, uh, a whitewash on the tombs, and they would do it on buildings as well. And they, they, what they wanted to do, especially before all the Passover pilgrims would flock into Jerusalem, they wanted to make Jerusalem look good. And they would also put it on the tombs, by the way, because you weren't supposed to touch a tomb because that somehow made you ceremonially unclean. And then you, you couldn't partake in the Passover festivities. And so Jesus is describing these guys like whitewashed tombs. Oh, on the outside, you're looking good. But on the inside, there's just internal wickedness. They're like those tombs. They're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that they're spiritually dead, spiritually filthy, and unclean. Next, you are, we see in verse 29 through 20 or 36 that hypocrisy is cursed for the murder of God's prophets. They were cursed for the murder of God's prophets. Now some would say, well, hey, wait a minute. Now these guys didn't actually murder the prophets of old. Well, Jesus says they're guilty. Because you need to understand, for hundreds of years, these religious leaders had been leading projects to build the tombs of the prophets. They were adorning the monuments of the saints and the heroes of ancient Israel. 
That's what Jesus says they're doing there. That's exactly what they're doing. And they, they'd be the kind of guys who would stand up on a speaker's platform and, and, and be involved in some ceremony where they would honor some ancient prophet of Israel or some hero of Israel. However, they realized that many of those saints had been persecuted and martyred by their own forefathers, which Jesus acknowledges here in the text. And so the scribes and Pharisees made passionate disclaimers for themselves, saying, hey, you know, uh, that's them, that's not me, I'm, I didn't do that. But Jesus is exposing their true character here. Did you notice Jesus says, you witness against yourself that you were sons of those who murdered the prophets. Jesus knew at that very moment, by the way, these guys, remember, this is the last week of Jesus' earthly life before He's to be crucified is during that Passion Week. And so, while Jesus is telling these guys they're hypocrites, they're plotting His murder. These are the guys who are claiming to stand up for the prophets and the saints and, and the heroes of Israel. All the while, they're plotting to kill Jesus. And so they're cursed for the murder of God's prophets. The judgment of the religious leaders was inevitable. It was coming. There was no way it could be avoided. As evidence of that judgment, did you notice Jesus says in the text, Behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. You read the book of Acts, read the epistles, that's exactly what they did. They would chase guys like Paul. They would, they would hound Paul to death and stone him and scourge him and put people in prison, take Christians and kill them. In other words, after they crucified Jesus, this is exactly what they did. They proceeded to kill the followers of Jesus Christ. Ever since the call of Abraham, several thousands of years ago, the Jews have been God's special people. God made a covenant with Abram. He says, I will bless you, and through your, your people, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Read it in Genesis 12. So throughout all the centuries of their oppression, by the way, including the Nazi Holocaust, which really did exist, by the way, they survived. D despite all the persecution and the murdering and the Holocaust, they survived. They've been divinely preserved by God. They still have the racial identity. Although they've been scattered to every part of the world, you can, you can find Jews, it seems like almost every country of the world these days. They become citizens of different countries. They intermarried with the Gentiles. Somehow, some way, by God's providence, God has preserved them. They're still a distinct, blessed people. And even now, they, we know that they, they've been Israel has been declared a state back in the 1940s. And despite the fact they're surrounded by people who want to nuke them and, and just wipe them off planet Earth, they still exist and are thriving. How is that possible? Because God preserved them. And so those who believe Scripture, their preservation shouldn't be a surprise. Because since God made His covenant with Abraham, God has pledged to preserve His chosen people and one day, the Bible says He's going to call them permanently back to Himself. 
And there will be a time of Israel's blessing again. So in the means, meanwhile, we see Israel seems to be crying out to a God who is not answering them. They wonder why they, they just seem to be suffering so much, especially through the Nazi Holocaust. But in the closing of Jesus' last public sermon here, he actually gives the answer to Israel's question of, why is it that we seem to be suffering so much? Well, look at Jesus' words in verse 37. Look at verse 37. Jesus responds with a compassionate heart here. He, verse 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In this section, we see that hypocrisy is under God's curse. Eventually, hypocrisy leads to destruction. God will not bless it. So we need to beware of hypocrisy because it is under God's curse. And we see here in verse 37 that Jesus longed to gather and protect His people. He had great compassion for them. He knew that A.D. 70 was coming when General Titus of the Romans would come and sack Jerusalem and kill millions of people. Jerusalem would be scattered. Israel would be scattered, the temple would be destroyed, and even today is still destroyed. The only remnants of the temple is the Wailing Wall. And so under uh, using here Jerusalem as a representative of all Israel, Jesus is reminding the people of the rebellion against Him. And it's manifested in their killing the prophets and stoning God's messengers. God is the one who sent those messengers. God's the one who sent those prophets to Israel. And they murdered them. It was never God's ultimate plan for His people to be punished, but God wanted them to return to Him over and over again. Read the Old Testament prophets. God is exhorting His people, return to Me. And that's why Jesus says here, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. That's a beautiful picture. of God's love for His people. I've even heard stories of, of chicken coops burning down, and they find after the chicken coop burns down that the mother hen was dead and burnt to a crisp, and the farmer thought that everything was gone, but when the mother chicken was removed, the little baby chicks were still alive under its mother's wings. The mother took the brunt of the flames, died protecting her baby chicks. That's what mother chickens do. Jesus is using that imagery here. He, he wants to gather and protect His people. He longed to draw Israel to Himself. He wanted to protect them just like a, a mother hen would do with her little babies. He wants to protect them from the storm that's coming. He wants to protect them from predators like, like maybe a, a bird of prey that would come and pluck up her, her little ones and destroy them and eat them. And so there was this beautiful intimacy here in Jesus' words as he's mourning over his people. But in verse 37, the, the last coming toward the end of verse 37, Jesus says, 
you would not. Jesus longed to protect His people, but Israel rejected and despised Jesus. Notice Jesus says there in verse 37, you would not. You were not willing. You're not willing. They didn't want Jesus' protection. They didn't want Jesus. They didn't want to be saved from their sins. They loved their sin. So what does Jesus do in verse 38 and 39? Jesus says, I'm going to remove my presence from Israel. I'm going to remove my presence from Israel. You look at verse 38. It's because Israel had forsaken God's Son that Israel is now going to be left desolate. Jesus says, I'm leaving you desolate. You will be subject to ungodly people in this world who are going to mock you. They're going to despise you. They're going to persecute you. You're going to go through Holocaust. You will be slaughtered. In the end times, the persecution of Jews, if you read the book of Revelation, it's going to escalate. There's going to be a Holocaust that's even going to be worse than the Nazi Holocaust. Read Revelation. Nothing like they've ever experienced before. That suffering's going to occur. The Bible actually calls that time period Jacob's trouble or the great tribulation. The last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. It's so bad that God calls it great. God's people will be slaughtered and persecuted. But in verse 39, Jesus gives his farewell, farewell words to Israel and he says, you will not see me again. You see that in verse 39? You'll not see me again. Jesus is saying, I am removing my special blessing on you. My presence from Israel is going to be removed. For the unbelieving Jews that were listening to Jesus that day, and for countless generations to come, those must have been very sobering words. They were the final words. Because they had rejected God, God rejected them. And, and he, he's no longer going to be their God. They're still His chosen people, yes. But they would no longer be His people in, in that sense. And that was certainly bad news. But there is good news here. Because Jesus doesn't end there. The good news is in Jesus' qualifying word, He uses that little word. Look at your text. He says, until. You see that? In your text? Until. If it wasn't for that word it would just be all doom and gloom, wouldn't it? It would be final. No hope. <laughs> this would be Israel's final moment in history. And we, we, we need to be thankful that Jesus didn't end with something else. I'm glad Jesus didn't say unless. I'm glad Jesus said until. Because if Jesus had said unless, that would make Israel's restoration only a possibility. But it's not. He said until. So that makes Israel's restoration a certainty. We know, the Bible says, one day Israel will be restored. Read Romans 11. It says, all Israel will be saved. So even in the context of his most severe curses, there's a word of hope. There's hope. That really shows us the heart of God in many ways. What a blessing that whenever there's judgment, whenever there's curses, Look for grace. Look for God's mercy and grace. We see that here. Especially in verse 39. We know that one day Israel is going to finally be able to say the words in verse 39. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I believe Jesus was quoting there from Psalm 118. And so in that day, Israel's going to be forever redeemed. They're going to be restored. They'll be blessed again. They're going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ in the millennium. My friend, what about you? What about you? I know what's going to happen to Israel in the future. When the Prince of Peace comes, Jesus Christ, He's going to rule and reign on planet Earth with a rod of iron. He's going to bless His people. There will be justice and righteousness reigning, and Israel will finally be at peace. But what about you? Do you have peace? You need to ask yourself whether you've been just kind of going through the motions of religion like the scribes and the Pharisees. Have you been wearing the mask? You know, hey, today I'm putting on my frowny face. Tomorrow I'm putting on my smiley face. I'm going to put on my mask. I'm going to pretend to be something I'm not. I'm going to just go through the motions of religion. Today I'm coming and I'm going to play church. I'm not going to let people know what's really going on inside me. I'm going to pretend that I'm actually worshiping God when in reality you're not. The Bible says in John chapter 4, verse 24, that those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. You can't worship God unless you're doing both. Are you going through the motions of religion? Are you really following Jesus Christ? Are you a hypocrite? Are you pretending to be someone you're really not? Have you been wearing a mask? The reality is probably every one of us, I would assume every one of us, at least some point in our lives, wear a mask. We don't, we don't want to be authentic to other people. We want to pretend that God doesn't actually see our heart. When in reality He does, He knows what's going on inside you when you're a hypocrite. You need to realize how subtly hypocrisy can creep into your life. Do you understand the, the scribes and the Pharisees started off good? They had good motives, good things. They wanted to obey God's law. And so they put up all these fences around the law. And what ended up happening is their traditions ended up becoming more important than God's law. We do the same. And, and subtly, subtly we become legalists and we, we can pretend that we're pleasing God when in reality we're not. We're just pleasing ourselves, just worshiping ourselves. Very subtle. You need to be on guard. You need to guard your own heart. And the best way you can really do that is continually feed your mind with the truth from God's Word. God's Word is sufficient for you. It is that, that sieve, that screen, that protection of your mind, your heart, and your will that you need to protect yourself against hypocrisy. Without it, you're defenseless. You need the Word of God and the Spirit of God empowering you. It's your only hope. So my friend, beware of hypocrisy because it is under God's curse. 